Introducing the two-way V4, where groundbreaking fuel cell technology meets fresh foam cushioning for the ultimate performance. With fuel cell, each step feels explosive, delivering unparalleled energy return. Paired with fresh foam, experience maximum comfort throughout the game. Its lightweight textile upper offers support and breathability without sacrificing agility. Whether you're hitting the clutch shot or locking down the opposition, the two-way V4 gives you the tools to play at a high level. Learn more and purchase the two-way for yourself at newbalance.com. You're listening to the Ots and Audibles podcast. I'm Matt Prem. Eric Scopel is with me as always. This is a Wednesday mailbag edition. Eight good questions have been submitted. If you didn't get your questions in, continue to send them to Eric. He is the person that fields all of these questions. You can send them via Twitter. You can Instagram him. You can hit him up on Facebook. You can hit him up on email. Uh, if you have his text, his text line, you could do that. More importantly, hit him up on DuckTerritory.com through that way. And if you're not a member of DuckTerritory.com, subscribe today for $1. $1 for your first month, $9.95 after that. Inside scoop, expert analysis, and opinion. Read all the content across the 24-7 Sports Network. Uh, and on top of all of that, when you start paying your regular scheduled price of $9.95 per month, uh, you get CBS All Access, 10,000 shows, live movies, Live sports, commercial free, on demand, all included with your membership at DuckTerritory.com. And you can start your membership for your first month only for $1. That's an incredible deal, so jump in on that now. All right, Eric, Wednesday show, we've got eight questions, kind of a wide-ranging group. Um, and ironically enough, the first question was something that we each messaged saying we needed to talk about. Yeah, it works out really nicely. So thanks to at KMuir101. This was something that Matt and I had actually said, even if the question wasn't asked, we were going to carve out some time on this show to discuss, because it's just like a big picture thing that probably needs to be uh, discussed on the podcast. So, for, so from at KMuir101, uh, Mike Bone at USC recently mentioned the possibility of going independent like Notre Dame in an interview about the struggles of the Pac-12. Do you think Oregon has built a big enough brand over the past couple of years to consider the same idea if a lucrative enough TV deal is offered. Uh, Matt, why don't you start here? I think this is an interesting question, and, and the brand for Oregon, do you think it's big enough to do something like this? Like, What's your take um, in terms of Oregon trying to do something like this? Where Oregon is in 2020 is drastically f- you know, far away from where they were in the year 2000. And in year 2000, the program was light years ahead of where they were in, in 1980. And you look at just the kind of the growth that this athletic department, not just football, just overall athletic department has seen in the last 40 years and then chop that 40 years down to the last 20. And I think this is now a realistic, at least debate. I, I mean, I think Oregon sure. should, I think Oregon should go and if you're athletic director Rob Mullins and President Schill, um, I, I think you at least through back channels say like, hey, like if the conference is going to continue to to spiral down and the, the the revenue differential between us and the Big Ten and the SEC and the ACC and the SEC and the and the Big Twelve, the, the other power schools and conferences, if if you're going to continue to see that gap widen from a revenue distribution, you know, number and, you know, the, the amount of access that those conferences have to postseason tournaments than the Pac-12 does, 
TV ratings and TV deals and all of that, then I think you at least through back channels have to come out and say to the Pac-12, through back channels at least, of we're going to explore all options. And all options means maybe we go independent. Maybe we explore creating a new conference with some teams out west. Maybe we try and join the Big 12. Um, I, I, I think you have to do that because look at, Let's just look at football this this season alone. And yes, Oregon it's a little unique because Oregon had, you know, a really really good season. They were in the hunt for the college football playoff for basically the entire year. But you look at the TV ratings for the 10 best games this season and I I believe 6 of the 10 included Oregon. And you go back to the year before that and a good chunk of them included Oregon. Even when Oregon was bad in 2016, right. They were one of the more watched programs in football. And then obviously the Mariota years, the Chip Kelly years, those are the teams that not only everyone out West, but the entire country watched when they watched Pac-12 football. Um, go back to, to, foot, to men's basketball. I mean, they're the only team to make a Final Four since UCLA did it in the early 2000s. Uh, they've got multiple Elite Eights in the last 20 years. They've got multiple Sweet 16s in the last 20 years. Um, they've got multiple conference championships in the last 20 years. And, and you cut that down to 10 and it, it grows even more. Women's basketball just won their third straight national, uh, Pac-12 championship. Um, track and field has a plethora of championships that you can't count with your two hands. Um, and, and so I, the athletic department has changed. The brand is as big and as strong as it's ever been at Oregon. And so I think you absolutely have to look at, at looking at this. I don't disagree with anything you said, Matt. I, I do think you're right in terms of Oregon is on the ascension as a brand. And it's not just football. It's men's basketball. It's women's basketball. It's track and field. It's softball, um, especially recently. Uh, you know, obviously this last year was a little bit down. But they, they, they had previously been maybe one of the biggest brands in their sport. Um, Oregon from an athletic, I mean, you talk about the overall health of Oregon's athletic department right now. It is like, they, they're, they're not missing a beat. There really aren't nope. that many sports where you're looking at them going like they couldn't win their conference that year. And, um, so you're right. Like from, from an end, yeah, I think Oregon could absolutely, they have the brand, they have the, the big athletes to lean upon. They have the donors and, you know, and someone like Phil Knight and all those connections to make this work. I, I just think it stinks that we have to have these conversations. It stinks that the Pac-12 has gotten to the point where, Schools like Oregon and USC, and, and I'll throw Washington, and even though they haven't been directly discussed, but they're the other kind of big top tier program in the conference. But that the big boys in the conference might have to take a look around, like that sucks. Like you know, I mean, just as somebody who grew up watching the Pac-10 and then obviously the Pac-12 now, uh, it's been really fun just to watch the conference and the conference rivalries. It would stink if this was removed, not because of something that you know. I mean, I guess if it would stink if this was removed because the conference just wasn't able to continue to compete, and, and that's kind of the direction it's headed. And I know, uh, I think there's still really fun Pac-12 conference championship races. Obviously, Oregon's been in the middle of the football, the men's and women's basketball, winning two of them a chance to win a third this week. But um, it would just be really, I think, disappointing if it got to the point where where it felt like you had to make a move. And I don't think we're quite to that point yet. I think there's room to save this conference. I think there's room for this conference to, to kind of get back. I don't think ever on even footing as the SEC and maybe the Big Ten and ACC, but to at least get back to a point where they're respectable and, and contending for championships, championships every season in, in a variety of sports. But um, it's going to take some progress, and I think you're right that it is headed to the point where Oregon and USC and Washington and, and maybe some of these other schools really need to discuss 
the possibility of going independent, the possibility of, of maybe calling up another, maybe the Big 12 and seeing about joining there. Um, again, I think all of that is disappointing, but you're right. I think that with the way things are going, I don't think you could fault Oregon for thinking, hey, we're one of the big boys right now, and, and right now we've kind of tied our tied ourselves to a conference that is not headed in the right direction and that they're kind of maybe potentially pulling us down going forward. And if that's the case and you feel strongly enough about it, follow the path that Notre Dame has followed, and and, and, and especially in football, go independent. I think you could definitely be successful there. But, it just, again, my, my thing is it just stinks that we're at this point. I think you – Look at this, though, with the understanding of this is all kind of uh, USC should be doing this, Oregon should be doing this, and like you said, probably Washington, and to an extent maybe UCLA. Uh, yeah. But these are the flagship brands of the Pac-12 conference, and I think they are more so doing this as a threat like, right. to the Pac-12 CEOs and more importantly to the Pac-12 commissioner of things are not going well. And just simply stating we need to wait until 2022, 2024, whenever the TV deal is up and, and, and simply just saying everything will be fine once this is, is over. It better be because if it's not, the, the league could crumble and you know, the league needs to be proactive, even though they've got these contracts that are in place and they can't get out of, um, you look at it though and, and say that the, the the power conference the, the power schools the flagship brands need to be coming out and throwing some kind of threats around and, and maybe threat isn't the right word but throwing their weight throwing their weight yeah around. throwing their weight and and telling the conference and making the people that are in charge of the conference a little worried of oh wow if we don't get our act together like we could lose our biggest brands and then where are we at you know then we're you know, then we're really screwed. Um, I, I, I certainly think this is salvageable and I certainly think that the conference can and will get there if, if, if the leadership is in place and the leadership is mindful of the things that they need to accomplish. But, um, I'm a hundred percent behind this idea of Oregon, at least through back channels exploring the idea. Yeah. And something does have to change. I don't think there's any question about it from, from somewhere at the top. The Pac-12 needs to make some changes. They need to try to get, and again, I said, I don't think they're ever going to be back on even footing with the SEC and the ACC and the Big Ten. Maybe I'm too negative there. Maybe they will get to a point where it feels like those schools are kind of on even ground, but they need to they need to at least salvage some things. They need to make some changes, or, or else this is headed in the wrong direction. You're right. I don't think you have two to four years to wait and, and try to see how this all plays out. you got to start making some proactive, progressive moves here in the interim, I don't necessarily know exactly what those mean, um, but there's something has to change absolutely going forward or, or else the, the future of the conference is in jeopardy. And certainly the future of the conference with, with some of these schools like Oregon and USC um, is in jeopardy. Second question from at Duck in Quack Rock. Who's going to have a better 2020 season? Mikhail Wright, Justin Flo, Mace Funa, or Noah Sewell? Um, this is an interesting question. Those are four young players. Obviously, Wright and Funa will be sophomores. Flo and Sewell will be true freshmen. Um, these are kind of, if you look at it from a recruiting perspective, four of your big, biggest recruits in these last two cycles. Obviously, Kayvon Thibodeau not mentioned here. He's already a, a pretty proven commodity. Um, I looked at this and thought, like, from a pure opportunity perspective, I feel like Mikhail Wright has the least chance to like, be on the field all the time just because there are – Thomas Graham and Diamond Lenore seemingly in the way. And we should mention spring practice starts this week, and maybe we'll leave with the first couple practices going like, holy crap, Mikhail Wright's going to beat one of these guys out. Um, and, and our answers to these questions will, will change a little bit. But I kind of looked at this in terms of 
which player is going to have the most opportunity, and I think it's going to be one of those linebackers. I'm going to pick Justin Flo. I think he's going to end up starting uh, at inside linebacker next to Isaac Slade Mataatia. I think he's going to fill in for Troy Dye. I don't know if he's going to – I shouldn't say I don't know. I don't expect he'll match the production of what Troy Dye did at Oregon where he had basically four straight 100 tackle seasons. Um, I think he could, he's capable of getting there, but that's just a lot to ask right away. At the same time, I expect he'll be very, very productive as a true freshman this year. Yeah, looking at this list, um, I, I it's tough to argue what you've just presented. I think Michael Wright's going to play a ton. Yeah, I do too. Um, and I mean, maybe maybe he turns into an All American as a as a return guy, you know, punt and and kickoff return, and and maybe he scores th- four touchdowns and has. 1500 all purpose yards because of kickoff returns and punt returns and whatnot. Um, I will say this. You and I have, have, have certainly said a ton about these two. Uh, Justin Flo and Noah Sewell and deservedly so. The fan base is 100% fired up to have Justin Flo and Noah Sewell on, on campus as well. But don't sleep on Mace Funa. I mean, I, I feel like he, he had a Really good, like first six weeks to the season, then maybe hit the freshman wall. Um, and part of that was pro- probably due to the fact that he just hadn't played a lot of football um, the last 18 months because of injury. But I wouldn't be surprised if all of a sudden Mace Funa puts together a, a really good sophomore campaign for Oregon as an outside linebacker. And I should say, there's literally no wrong answer here. All four of those players, I expect, will, will be strong contributors on that defense this year. I, I just think, and Funa, honestly, Funa would have been my second pick. Like if I if I'm sitting here putting together and penciling a, a two deep together, I have both Funa and, and Flo starting. I probably don't have either of the other two starting, if I'm being honest. So um, Funa, I think you've made a lot of good points there about why he could be in for an even better sophomore season than his freshman year, which, like you mentioned, ha- had some really high moments. All right, third question from at Burton Laplum. I'm feeling pretty positive about the 2020 offensive line with Stephen Jones, Sala, and Jonah to go with Penny Sewell. That's great talent that I'm confident will be developed at the U of O. How about the center position, though? Forsyth, Walk, Yaramillo, TJ Bass. Is my confidence in the offensive line warranted, and how do you feel about the center position and who will play there? Um I, you know, personally, I, there's a ton of question marks on the offensive line. We've said that a ton of times, but I, I, I lean towards what Burton is feeling here in terms of like, I think it might not be at the beginning of the season, but at some point in 2020, we're going to be really impressed with this offensive line group. I think obviously they've got their, <laughs> they're the best offensive line in the country at Penny Sewell playing left tackle. So that's a good building block. It's a decent place to start, but I, I do think the names that you mentioned there, Burton, in terms of Stephen Jones and Malasala and, and Jonah, and, and some of the names you mentioned there for center are also ones that could fill in at other spots as starters or even at center as a starter. Um, I, I do think there is going to be a lot of talent on this line. I think eventually it will be a very good offensive line. I do think you have to be prepared for those first two games, especially against teams like North Dakota State and Ohio State, for there to maybe be some growing pains and have a hard time. You know the Buckeyes in particular are going to have – a plethora of players that they'll present that will be very challenging for Oregon to block up front. And that's going to be really fun to see how those guys step up um, and kind of fill in that. Um, in terms of the center position, I think that's, the, yeah, that is the biggest question mark in my mind. Um, Matt, kind of first, I guess, what are your thoughts on the offensive line? And then do you have a, a name at center you like the most right now? It's, it's a unique year because 
at, on one hand, you feel like, wow, Oregon has the best offensive lineman in the country from the 2019 season, and he's coming back yep. for another year. Oregon's offensive line should be one of the best in the country. They have the, one of the best. They have the best player along the offensive line. Therefore, they should be the best. But at the same time, then you realize, oh, well, they also lost four guys <laughs> yeah. that were starting for last year's team. Um, you buy into the fact that Crystal Ball has a strong reputation of developing offensive linemen. You buy into the fact that offensive line coach Alex Maribal has the same trait as well. And you understand that the guys that are being replaced are not as good on paper coming in as high school prospects as the guys replacing them. So I think there's some optimism. There's, there's, this team should be good up front. This team should be dominant up front. This team should be one of the best offensive lines in the country. The question for me is how long does it take for the unit to gel and to find their five best and get to that level where they're producing at the highest level possible for that unit? That to me is the question. It's not of if they're going to do it. It's when are they going to get to that point? Because Penny Sewell is the best lineman in the country, and then Stephen Jones was a, a high-ranked four-star offensive tackle. When he's played, he's been very, very good for Oregon. He redshirted this past season. Malastala Oamave was the junior college best offensive lineman uh, in, in the 2019 recruiting class. He redshirted this past season. And then you've got a plethora of four and, and four star, and three-star guys that, are, that have been in the system um, – <laughs> That should rise up. It's more of when does this happen to me? Now, who starts at center? I think it's going to be Ryan Walk or it's going to be Alex Forsyth. One of those two guys, both of them being juniors along the offensive line. I think Forsyth probably, I think Ryan Walk, ironically enough, will probably open up spring ball at the center spot on Thursday um, as a walk-on, but it wouldn't surprise me if Forsyth and him are kind of basically interchangeable throughout all spring. And it, and it wouldn't surprise me at all if the, the starting five, the first five we see on um, the two deep on, on Thursday are are a completely different five than we see the last week of, of spring practice. Because I, I think there is going to be a ton of reshuffling. I like the names you mentioned there in terms of Forsyth and Walk. Uh, Dawson Yaramillo and TJ Bass are two other names, but I think your names are, are probably the ones to really watch. Um, it's going to be really interesting to see what this what this look, group looks like. I think you're right. I think it could take a, a little bit of a time to find your best five, but when you do, it will be a strong best five, and it's it's going to be really fun. I think to to watch you know this type of position group battle because it's not just one or two guys. It's it's a lot of guys, and there's going to be a ton of reshuffling, and it's going to be kind of just figuring out what from you know from mixing and matching what makes the most sense, and that's going to be a process that will be ongoing. Again, I would be stunned if the the first five we see here on Thursday is the five we see start the season. I think that would be shocking. Um, but we'll we'll learn a ton this week, and, and I that's one of the things I'm most excited to learn this week is just kind of how this group shapes uh, shapes out and kind of who stands out. Maybe there are some surprise names we're not even mentioning right now that, that end up factoring into this more than we expect there will be. All right, fourth question from at Josh Harden. I think that I think he might have had a typo here, but I'm going to read it the way he said it because I like the way it comes across. Power tank, which I think meant power rank. Power tank these games in terms of importance to the football program. I chose six just to be spicy. The 1994 Washington game, the 2001 Stanford game, 2011 National Championship, 2014 Rose Bowl, 2014 National Championship game, and the 2019 Rose Bowl. Um, 
We're going to run through this a little quickly because I think we could probably debate the merits of all of these games for for a really long time, and we want to make sure the show is is uh, is done today, and it's not a, like an hour and a half long podcast. But um, I'll start from six to one. My order: I went two thousand one Stanford, and, and the significance of that game being if Oregon had won that game, they'd be playing in a national championship game. Uh, they lost that game to Stanford forty nine forty two. Was a game they honestly probably should have won. They lost it about three or four different ways. Uh, it was a disappointing loss, but I think that is a, an important one in terms of, like, if they had won that game, you'd be looking at uh, the trajectory maybe a little differently. They might have gotten uh, a national championship game berth at least that season. Maybe they would have won a title. Um, fifth, I had the 2014 national championship game. That was, I think, one of the more disappointing performances. Obviously, Ohio State had a lot of talent that year, very deserving of the national championship, but I think Oregon would players on that team would admit they didn't play their best. Fourth, I have this last year's Rose Bowl. I think that was a significant, significant win. I think that's one that creates a lot of momentum now going into the next decade. It'll be curious to see how they build off of it. Uh, third, I had the 2011 National Championship game. That was the first National Championship game appearance. It proved a lot. It proved that they could make it that far. Uh, obviously, it's something that they've now duplicated a, a, a once, and, and maybe they'll duplicate it a little bit in the 2020s. Uh, 1994 win over Washington. I have that second just because I look at that game and go, like, that was a huge turning point for the program. It was the first Rose Bowl appearance in a long time. It set that up. Uh, the Kenny Wheaton play remains uh, the play for this program. It is one of the most in, important and impressive plays. Uh, it's, it's a program-defining play, I think. And then the first... The first choice is the 2014 Rose Bowl. I, I just think the fact that they beat a Florida State team, a program that had not lost in a handful of years, Jameis Winston had not been beaten as a starting quarterback, and they go out there and Oregon gets the win. I think that was a, a game that kind of proved they could take down a top program, and the fact that they did it so dominantly uh, stands out. And it was a, a, a banner game for Marcus Mariota, who's the program's most important player. Uh, Matt, I just ran through my six. I don't know if you want to run through all of them, but if you want to t- take your time, let me know what your thoughts are on this question. Um, I I think the 2011 National Championship, for me, might be the most important because out of this group, just because it was the first time that they made it. It felt like, wow, this was something that was said could never happen at Oregon, and it built the idea that you could go this far. Um, I would argue that probably the 94 game was against Washington was probably the second most, like you said, just because that was kind of what jump-started the entire program. And then I'd go to 2014's national championship. I'd go to the then 2014 Rose Bowl game, the 2019 Rose Bowl game, and then I think I would end it with 2001 Stanford. I don't know. I'm not quite sure why that game's in there because they lost. Yeah, but if, if they had one, they might have played for a championship. Sure. I, I, I agree. I think it's the sixth one without a question. Yeah, I think sure. it's the I just, I, I don't know. I just can't get all the way there of comparing it to those similar games. Like, I think the 2010 Rose Bowl game was more significant than the 2001 Stanford regular season game. I think the 2001 Fiesta Bowl was much more significant than a couple, maybe, maybe even the, 2019 Rose Bowl, um, to be, if, if we're being honest, um, I, I, I would really, if, if we threw in the Fiesta Bowl game in 2001, that would change the topic, I think, entirely. All right, that's going to do it for this segment. Let's take a quick break. You're listening to the Odds and Audibles podcast. 
This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. All right, welcome back to the Odds and Audible's podcast. I'm Matt Prem. Eric Scopel is with me as always now. Four questions in, four questions to go. Fifth question at Quack Attack 74. With all the great performances by Chiron Ware Hudson over the past few weeks, do you think you see him getting a fifth star at some point? We should mention that uh, he's a four-star recruit who actually I think just picked up his first four-star status from 247 Sports at least, uh, younger brother of Duck Keon Ware Hudson. He's a verbal commitment at wide receiver. And if you've missed some of the highlights on social media, like he's been making some awesome catches in the end zone. A lot of them have been one-handed catches. He's kind of been, uh, from a social media perspective, kind of taking that over by storm recently. Uh, Matt, what are your thoughts on where Hudson, and, and do you think is a, is a five-star status something that's too far for him to reach, you think? Ooh, I have no idea, to be honest with you. Like I, I know it's kind of a cop-out, but he it seems like every chance he goes, he continues to impress at the receiver position. I think Going in, it was kind of a wonder of what position was he going to, going to play. He could be a lot of different options. Um, looking at him as 162nd in the country, seventh best, you know, athlete in the country, that's going to take a pretty humongous leap for him to get to that point. I, I think it's much more realistic that maybe he finishes inside the top 75 in the country than being a five star. All right, sixth question from at only here for sports. Do you think Ruthie Hebert will need to develop a jump shot in the WNBA? Also, what position do you see her playing? And he used the hashtag Ots and Audibles, and uh, we're trying to we're trying to make that a thing. So if you have Are questions, we? well, I don't know if we're trying to. Maybe I'm trying to make it a thing. It makes it easier for me to find questions. I'm all for I'm it. Currently, currently the only way I'm really able to find them is in my mentions. If you use that hashtag, I will search that hashtag on Twitter, and that'll make it a little easier for me to track down questions. So. If you have questions and you miss my posts, I post a couple times, usually on Monday, sometimes on Tuesday, just asking for questions. If if you'd use that hashtag, uh, I will find it a little bit more easily, uh, and that way I don't have to rely entirely based upon the qu- times I make the posts on Twitter. So, yeah, I, th- thank you very much for starting that hashtag or for being the first non-me user of that hashtag because I've been using that for a couple <laughs> weeks. Trying to start to get it going, so thank you for doing that. As far as the question um, – I think she's going to have to, I'll start with the second question first. I think she's a power forward at the next level. Obviously, she played center here. It'd be interesting to see if Sedona Prince had been cleared this year. Would you have seen Ruthie Hebert play a lot more power forward? Probably. Um, she's a little bit undersized at power forward. I mean, it's probably the equivalent of, or, or, sorry, I should say at center at the next level. 
She's a little undersized at 6'4". It's probably the equivalent of being like a 6'10 player trying to play center um, in the NBA. It's just uh, you're, you're going to be a little shorter than quite a few of the players you're going up against. I think power forward makes sense for her. Um, I'm not saying she can't do it and, and that she couldn't be successful in that way, but I think probably you need to have a little bit bigger body to patrol the rim, um, to protect the rim for her. Um, in terms of a jump shot, it wouldn't hurt. And we should say she's a pretty strong free throw shooter. She's shooting at about 70%, so the ability to, to make a shot from that distance is there. It's just not something she's needed to do. And it's going to be interesting to see what her development looks like. So I think so much of what she's been at Oregon has been because of the pick and roll, which obviously has worked very, very well. Um, and having Sabrina Ionescu, the one initiating it, makes it even easier. And so much of, so many of her looks are within three to five feet of the basket. Probably not necessarily going to be the case at the next level, but it's not just the pick, the pick and roll that she's been successful with. Um, you know, she's got a number of post moves that we've seen her, her, her utilize at her time here. You, you go back and think of all the step throughs and the, and the way she comes off both the right and the left side with the jump, the jump hook. I think she's pretty versatile in how she does that and it's tr- extremely efficient. I mean, you're talking about a player who over her career is going to finish shooting about 65% from the field, 66% or better the last two years. This year she's shooting 68%. Certainly capable, I think, of being a very, very good offensive player at the WNBA level. Um, do I think she could use a jump shot? Absolutely. Do I think she needs one to be a quality player? Probably not. All right. Um, uh, I think you know this one better than I do, so I can't really argue against anything you just said, to be honest. Works for me. All I'm right. also going to delete that statement from all digital archives. <laughs> Thank you very much, Matt. Uh, seventh from at NBOFTO. What will the men's team look to do for center next year? With Enfale Dante uncertain, uncertain or staying for next season, where could they look to fill that void? Obviously, they have a Coro, but Isaac Johnson won't be back until 2021. Just like the women's program, I might have a better feel than Matt. Matt, you have a much better idea on this one, so I will let you just jump in and, and, and take this one. I mean, I don't know if it's necessarily safe to say that there's uncertainty with Enfale Dante's staying or going, just because... There's literally been nothing out there to suggest one way or the other. Um, I think the idea that it's, he's a five star certainly entices the idea that there's a, that potential, but again, like there's no really smoke out there saying one way or the other. And, and quite honestly, like he could say, I want to go pro, but what's he going to base this off of high school film? I mean, NBA scouts aren't really going to be as enamored with that as they would be if he came back his sophomore year and, and performed well at the collegiate level. Um, I mean, certainly think he would find his way onto a training camp roster, but I don't know how you could guarantee anything more than that with what we've seen from him this year just because of the injuries and the delayed en- enrollment. Now, as for the center position, I think obviously there is a Coro. Um, they will also have Luke Wehr, who comes off redshirt. I think Chandler Lawson has, has shown that he's – more than capable of, of at least holding his own at that center position, and you would think that he would expand his game just a little bit um, at minimum and as a sophomore. So, I mean, I, I think the center spot's fine, especially if everyone comes back. Like, quite honestly, they should um, be expected to come back. You have an Okoro, you have a healthy Infali Dante, you have a Chandler Lawson, and you have an available Luke Wurr, you now have four guys that you can throw into that rotation that are true centers. And then you also have the factor of, of playing small. I mean, maybe they play Eugene Umari, who's, yeah, he's 6'6", 
but maybe they, they, they play small ball with a couple guys for some, some rotations. I think there's a ton of options. I think there's a ton of outlook, a ton of positivity around the center spot for Oregon, uh, going into the 2020, 2021 season. Just to build off that question before we get to our last one, um, from the, from the listeners. Is, do you think, and what if Enfoli Dante goes out and has an awesome Pac-12 tournament? Maybe he plays really well this weekend. We should, we should note that Oregon has a chance to win the conference this weekend. They host Cal and Stanford. Um, but do you think if he has like a huge final seven, eight games of the season, maybe he plays really, really well in, in the NCAA tournament as well? I mean, do you think he could get to a point where he'd have enough? Or do you think the fact that he missed most of this season is pretty much like he doesn't going to have, he's just not going to have the resume to really be uh, a top NBA draft pick? Well, I mean, he's 6'11", and he was a five-star recruit in high school. And I think we've seen in very short spurts his potential. And so if he comes out and does the unthinkable and plays to his truest form at the highest stage of, of college basketball, meaning this weekend's home slate, senior day, weekend, conclusion of the regular season against Cal on Thursday, Stanford on Saturday, three games in the Pac-12 tournament, and then say they make the elite, say, say they make the final four. And he plays in, in five games and at a high, at the highest of levels that he's capable of doing. Yeah. Like that could be enough. I mean, we, we saw a guy from Villanova. I can't, the name is escaping me because it's off the cuff, but, um, we saw a freshman at Villanova who was, you know, solid throughout the entire course of the year and then exploded in the NCAA tournament and had six or seven straight really good games when they won it all. And he went pro and was a first round draft pick and he was a guard. Now, if Dante doesn't have the scope of the entire year and also how realistic is it that all of a sudden he's going to play at his best level for nine games in a row when he has played in 10 games to date, not real realistic, but I, I think it's safe to safe to assume that he should be back next season. All right, last question from at Pack Surfrider. Do you guys cover baseball slash softball as well as you cover football slash basketball? Will either of you be following the baseball team to Hawaii this week? Uh, second question first. Unfortunately, neither of us will be in Hawaii this week. It's, Damn it. It is devastating. Yeah, I'm sorry to break that news to you, Matt. Matt was ready to get on the plane and, and go follow this baseball club to uh, where they're playing the University of Hawaii from Thursday through Sunday of a four-game series. Um, worth should I have not booked games. that hotel? You should not have booked it, Matt. I didn't give you the green light until now. You're, you're trying to, yeah, you got jumped the gun. So, uh, we will not be covering it. We should say that, um, our intern at Jared Mack on Twitter is worth following. Uh, Jared has been covering, uh, baseball for us this year. He will be for the, the, the rest of the season and the foreseeable future. He's done a great job. He's a club baseball player at the University of Oregon, or at least was previously, so he knows the sport really, really well. He's been at Oregon's home games, and we should note that they started off with four straight losses, but have, did a nice job rebounding here and won seven in a row, including all four games against Milwaukee over this past weekend. So a little bit of positive swing there with with the baseball team. From a softball perspective, we will cover them as well. Um, again, we are kind of waiting a little bit here for men's and women's basketball to end and then spring football to kind of really turn our attention fully to baseball and softball, which are just kind of early parts of their season. But uh, I will be covering softball. I have been already uh, attending the media availabilities, haven't been a chance to attend a home game since there hasn't been one. Those will be this weekend, but uh, yeah, we, there will be coverage for sure on DuckTerritory.com for both safe baseball and softball. Um, but yeah, neither of us are are going to the islands, and I've never been to Hawaii before. So if there Ooh, was a time, I know I'm missing out. I I, I mean I 
can't much say much more than that, but yeah, we will be covering it. I think that's something that's made us pretty unique than uh, the other team sites is we, we don't just cover football and we don't just cover recruiting. Certainly those are our bread and butter and certainly that's, um, what's out there that, that really drives the subscription. But we've also acknowledged and understanding that there are other sports out here that a lot of Oregon fans have interest in. And while it maybe doesn't, um, generate us a subscription, it generates you coming in and checking out the site and reading a story. And then maybe you find something else that you find of interest. And then that's the why you subscribe. Uh, certainly if the more people subscribe, the more coverage of other sports we can give because we can devote more time to that. Um, there's always a business side. I don't want to get too into that side of it, but um, really excited for another year of, of coverage. You know, I, I think Eric and I sat down about a year and a half ago for the women's basketball side and said that we need to cover this and we need to treat this like we're covering the men. And a couple of years ago we said we needed to cover the men like we need to cover football. And I think both of those Decisions have paid off, I think, for the reader on DuckTerritory.com as well as uh, for us. And I think we're getting to that point from a discussion standpoint, from at least a softball point, where how much is too much and, and how much do we have to do? Because th- I'm blown away right now. We have we have lots of discussion on the softball team right now during a Final Four potential run for the women uh, an NCAA tournament run that could go to the final four for the men. Both of those teams are, are in the hunt for a conference championship player of the year races for both. We had a, the Oregon football was going on at the start of softball where they were trying to get the conference championship from a recruiting perspective. And yet there's a, a significant daily action of interest in softball. So yeah, we're covering softball. We think baseball will get there as well. Um, and, and we have the coverage out there. So if you're looking for that, you can go to duckterritory.com for more. All right, I think that's it, right, Eric? We have we've we've done all eight. Is that am I correct here? We ran through all eight questions. Good questions this week, guys, and uh, keep asking them on. Uh, and again, I want to keep that hashtag out there at hashtag Ots and Audibles. Let's get that rolling. Yes, please do t- tweet at it hashtag Ots and Audibles. Real quick, we've got five minutes left. Um, we've got a little bit of time. We rolled through these maybe a little bit ahead of schedule here. Oh no! Oh no! Um, Civil War, uh, not the Civil War game. Uh, huge basketball game from the men's side on Thursday night. So we're not going to have a podcast before that game is played. I think we should take this opportunity, just five minutes real quick, kind of discuss this here for a second. Um, if you're not familiar, Oregon is currently half a game out of UCLA in the, in the Pac-12 standings. The Bruins have one game left this regular season. Oregon has two. So basically what happens here is that this is what's at stake this week. If Oregon wins on Thursday against California, they move into a tie with UCLA for first place. And then it's a winner-take-all type of scenario unless they both win on Saturday. UCLA will play USC on the road Saturday afternoon, and then Oregon will play Stanford at home on senior day to know if they're going to play for a share of the conference championship or if they're playing it for outright. And none of that is, is possible, though, unless Oregon wins – Thursday night, so tomorrow night for for the men, and they're playing a California team that, quite honestly, like we look at them and historically, oh, they're not very good. They're seven and nine in conference play this season, but they're kind of rolling right now. They've come off um, two really big wins at home when they beat number twenty one Colorado, and then they beat Utah to close out their senior trip. They've won three of their last four games. Uh, granted, 
one of those, two of those were against two other bottom dwellers in, in Washington State and Utah. But they're a team that's played well, and they gave Oregon fits just a month ago when Oregon won 77-72 to 72 at Haas Pavilion. I was just going to say, I mean, this is a Cal team that, you know, maybe they're not quite as good on the road as they are at home. We should know, if you look at what they've done at home this year, they're pretty darn good at home. Yeah. I mean, they've, they've beaten some really good teams there, but when they've gone on the road, it has been a little bit of a different story. But, yeah, they challenged Oregon, and that was a game that probably was a lot closer than it needed to be. I think Oregon didn't play at its best at times, and that was, of course, uh, a game that they needed to win, and, and it was a big road win for them at the time. Uh, I think it's going to be interesting to see where this team is at. Obviously, uh, you're, you're encouraged based upon the fact that they just have have now put a couple of really nice wins together. Arizona on the road was was, a, was an important one, a tough one, a, one that came down to the wire. And then, of course, Oregon State was was a more one of the more dominating home wins they've had all season. Um, you look at Cal, you look at Oregon. Obviously, Oregon is playing for a lot more than Cal, but but Cal's been, like you said, they've been playing pretty well. What are some things, Matt, in terms of this matchup, just looking at it, that you think you need to see from Oregon to ensure they don't slip up here? Because this would be a, a really bad loss if they took it. Yeah, it'd be really bad. Chris Duarte, I would expect, is not going to play in this game. We also have to monitor the fact that Will Richardson turned his ankle um, late in that game against Oregon State last week. What's the health there? If And if there's any kind of impact there, Oregon could be down to just three guards, Pritchard, Mathis, and freshman Addison Patterson. So I think one health-wise, where's Oregon at health-wise? Positively, what can you get out of Infale Dante at the center position? He played, uh, I think, five or six minutes against Oregon State. Altman said he wanted to play more, but Altman also said this is he, he wasn't going to throw him out there for more than that, and that this current week, Cal-Sanford week, was when he'll start increasing the minutes. So what can you get out of the six-foot-eleven center five-star guy? And then I think defensively, everything starts and stops with – Sophomore guard Matt Bradley, he's one of the best stories in, in the Pac-12 this season. Doesn't get discussed a lot because he's on the Cal team, but he, this is a guy that last year was averaging 10 points a game, was averaging 3.6 rebounds, and um, he's up to he's up to Zanny. He's one of the best scorers in the league. He's at 17.9 points per game. He scored 26 in a win against Colorado uh, last week, and then he scored 21 in the win against Utah in overtime. He, he is a big guard, six foot four, 220 pounds, looks more like a football player. And without Chris Duarte, who's going to guard him? That's going to be a good question. I think you have, everything starts and stops with him. If, if you stop him, California will have a hard time, uh, being able to stick with Oregon. And most importantly, real quick, before we wrap this up, Oregon has to push the tempo. Cal plays an extremely slow play, uh, pace of basketball. Um, they understand that they don't have the t- same level of talent as everybody else does. And so when you know that, you limit possessions and you try and make it a three or four possession, you know, a game that's decided over three or four possessions in the final four minutes uh, of a game. And that's Cal's goal is you look at these games in which they're winning and a lot of them are, are being played below the 70s. You know, they want this game high 50s, low 60s. I mean, they beat Washington 61 to 58 in overtime. They lost to UCLA 50 to 40. They, they beat Stanford 52 to 50. Um, they had a couple other games in which they, they in non-conference play, they, they did that. So for Oregon, you need to, to speed up the, the tempo and make this pace of a game go up and down. All right. That's going to do it for us here on the Austin Audible's podcast. Thank you for listening. Thank you for sending your questions in for Eric Scopel and myself, Matt Prem. We'll talk to you soon. Adios, amigos.